2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7 reads this. We now have this light shining in our hearts. You know what that light is? It's the light of Christ. You're right. Jesus. Now we have this light of Christ shining in our hearts, but, my favorite word in the Bible, we ourselves are like fragile clay jars containing this great treasure. This makes it clear that our great power is from God, not from ourselves. Two weeks ago, I dropped this pot right here on a stage, and it shattered. I did that, looking at the same scripture verse to remind us that we are fragile clay jars. We're made from dust, made by the hands of God. I did that to remind us there's times when our fragility is very recognizable. Life's hard on clay pots. Life throws all kinds of things at you, and over time, we're cracked, we're broken, we're shattered. It doesn't happen once. It happens a lot. The question we've been trying to answer is, when we're broken, how does God repair us to be useful vessels again, carrying that great light and treasure? Let me show you a picture of this very pot up here. Like I said, two weeks ago, I dropped it. That video that opened us, it shows the ancient Japanese art of kintsugi, where they actually use gold and lacquer to repair pots with gold, repaired with gold. If you can see that, this one's repaired with gold all the way through. It reminds me, every time I look at it, how often God has restored me. How often he's repaired me to be a useful vessel with great light, which is a great treasure. But in this, I hold the very power, the great power of God who works through me. I can't do that if I'm not whole. So welcome everybody here. We're glad you're here. For those online, we're glad you're with us too. For those online, we are going to finish in communion today. So if you would scurry around, grab juice and bread, because... Be honest with you, when we do communion here, it is the pinnacle of everything. It's not the sermon, it's not the worship, it's communion is the highest point, and we always head towards there. So we'd ask those who are home to join with us. For those who are new to us online and here, my name is Brian, I'm our lead pastor, and we're really glad you're here. Uh, let me cover a couple of notes. Uh, Lene brought up this worship guide. Uh, when you walked in today, there's these sermon notes on the back. We're going to talk about God's word together here in just a little bit, and this is an outline of what we're going to talk about today. Um, but the other thing that's kind of important on here, uh, not only the baptism, but uh, this isn't on here, but helping international students, you want to be a great vessel of light, you can say yes or amen. That's okay. You can interact all day long. Helping international students is a ministry we work with and have worked with for years. Every semester, a bunch of new international students come from all over the world right here to Manhattan, Kansas. And we work with that ministry to create friends for them. So when they land here in a foreign place, an unusual place, immediately help them navigate and, and learn and, and even welcome them in to be worship here. If you come to both services, you'll notice there's people here from Russia, from Vietnam, from Nigeria, and from India, and probably other places too. It's not like, oh, wow, look at the international students that are here. It's like they're family. 
And what's really cool about a lot of us who grew up in the plain states is we don't have a really good view of what heaven's going to look like. The more you invite of the world here, the more it looks like. And so um, there's a table out here at the end of the service today. Joyce and Dick Nelson will be there. There's 15 students that have not been matched yet. Eight, seven women, eight men. If you want to be a great vessel and this is something you want to try, I really encourage you to go out. They'll sign you up, connect you with an international friend, and just help them feel welcome and help them feel part of, part of this community. Uh, and so that's, that's an important announcement. The other one is small groups. Uh, small groups did kick off this week. There's 30-some, I think, going on right now. Uh, if you're not in a small group, I really want to consider to tell you, hey, there, that list is out there at our doors to join one because that's how we really grow in community, to learn God's word together, to be bright vessels Join into one of those communities. Make sure they're just sharing names and giving books out this week. You haven't missed anything. So make sure you join one of those small groups when we grow together as a community. We're in the third week of a sermon series called Broken Vessels, Heroes of Faith. There's a paradox there. Do you see the paradox? Broken Vessels, Heroes of Faith. And we're hanging in this scripture verse from 11, uh, Hebrews 11, uh, verse 32. The scripture verse reads this. It says, how much more do I need to say? It would take too long to recount the stories of the faith of Gideon, Barak, Samson, and Jephthah. The Hebrew author did not have time to tell you about these four guys. We're taking four weeks to share about these four guys. These four guys are all from the book of Judges, a period of time. They're great, the great things, they did great things as God worked through them. And they're also really broken vessels, each uniquely and distinctly different. So week one, we talked about the story of Gideon and how fear, how fear made him kind of a broken vessel and how God worked through that. And we started with that one because fear is probably the number one thing we work against the church right now with what's going on in the world is fear. It really breaks us as vessels. Week two, Pastor Dylan stood up here and shared the story of Barak, and he shared the story of timidity. When timidity, I sit back and I let the church be the church, and I don't be the church because of brokenness, wherever that brokenness is, but timidity. And so before we jump into the third story here, I, I want to go back and make sure I'm painting kind of a good picture because it sets our story up of this time of Judges. During the time of Judges in the Bible, the Israelite nation just arrived in Israel in the promised land. And there was no king. They did not have a king. God was their king. It was what we call a theocracy. But what we see in Judges is this time over and over and over where Israel is surrounded by many nations, names like Ammonites, Canaanites, Midianites. They're surrounded by them and they worship other gods. God put them here as a witness to the world. But they intermarry and they join in and they don't, and the next thing you know, the, the other worshiping and the other things that entice them away, they get mixed up with that. And so what happens is, is the nation just, God's plan is to show the world him and they end up being like the world. It happens over and over and over. Judges 17.6 kind of paints a picture here. It says, in those days Israel had no king. All the people did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. Does that sound familiar to you? We struggle with this as a nation, where we lose track and we want to do things that look right in our own eyes. In Judges, you see six cycles. This is over 350 years is a period of Judges. You see six cycles here of 
intermixing, chasing other things, falling apart, crying out to God, God restoring. Six cycles over 350 years. Six cycles of being oppressed and overrun and scared. Judges 2, verses 15 and 16. The people were in great distress. And then the Lord raised up judges to rescue the Israelites from their attackers. So as we go through each of those cycles, and each one of those cycles starts with this scripture, the Israelites did evil in the sight of God. It repeats every time. God allows the Israelite nation to kind of sleep in the beds they've made to show them that, hey, if you want to turn from me, then this is what's going to happen. And it would happen. It would happen over and over. But God was right there every time to restore them. So here's our first sermon together. I think it's important to understand this about the judges. The judges were the rescuers of their era. Sometimes, for those of you who are very familiar with the Old Testament, we look at judges. Judges commonly sat at the city gates. They dealt with people's issues, you know, conflicts and families and stuff. They come to the gates. Judges will help sell that. In the book of Judges, really the judges were called each time out to actually lead their nation back to God. They were rescuers. Rescuers. Not that they didn't judge at the gates and things, but that wasn't their primary importance. They were leaders anointed by God to lead Israel out of trouble. So today we're going to talk about the third person there in Hebrews 11, Samson. He's a judge. He's appointed by God. He's a broken vessel. He's also a hero of faith. So I'd like you to turn with me to Judges chapter 13. Judges is in the Old Testament, kind of early there on in your Bible. Judges chapter 13. While you're flipping there, Samson, you know, when you think about it, Samson was one of the most glamorized of the Old Testament heroes. I went out on imdb.com and counted there's 20 movie titles about him since 1940. 20. Glamorized. Like, I, don't know if I don't know if Moses has 20 films. He might. But why do we write so much about Samson? And people wrote songs about him. Grateful Dead wrote Samson, Deliah. Uh, Pointer Sisters wrote the song Fire, right? You want to sing it with me? Like Romeo and Juliet, dun, 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 Samson and Delilah. That's all they get. It's that one part. So why is there so much written about Samson and Delilah most of the time too? I have an idea why he's gotten so much attention, but I'm going to hold that for a little while. If you would move Samson out of the Grateful Dead songs and out of all the movies and out of the ancient Israel past, and you'd say, who, who is most like him today? In today's context, who is most like Samson those online, you can just like type it into Facebook Live. I have an idea. Who you got? Aaron Who? <laughs> Aaron Rodgers? That's good. I like that. So why did you say that? Was it the hair? <laughs> Anybody else? Thank you. That's who I got. Right here, Thor. Thor reminds me of him. Thor's got the long flowing hair, which is Samson's big part of his story. Thor was big hair from the 80s, right? But he's actually later than that. He's big hair, big muscle, big presence, supernatural power. An Avenger. 
So maybe I should have had like judges or avengers. That's probably a term that fits better today. Here's your second sermon note. Samson was not a Marvel superhero. In our kids' stories and stuff, we tend to paint him as this guy with this supernatural power. Let's talk about who Samson is because I think you're going to find him very relatable. So here's a list. You're going to have to write this to the side. It's not on your sermon notes. So write to the side. Samson was, let's start here, first born miraculously, Judges 13, 3. Uh, Samson's mom and dad, Manoah was his dad, his mom, farmers, and the tribe of Dan, and they couldn't, it's hard to be a farmer and not have a son. Or have any children. And so Judges 13.3 reads, The angel of the Lord appeared to Manoah's wife and said, Even though you have been unable to have children, you will soon become pregnant and give birth to a son. So Samson was a miraculous gift from God. And from the beginning, he was set apart. That's our next note. Samson was not only born miraculously, he was set apart as a Nazarite. 13.5, 13.5, Judges 13.5, it says, His hair must never be cut, for he will be dedicated to God as a Nazarite from birth. So what's a Nazarite? So if you write down your side notes, Numbers, the book of Numbers, chapter 6, starting in verse 1, there's 21 verses that will tell you what a Nazarite is, but let me break it down for you. Nazarites, the word Nazir in Hebrew means to be separated, to set apart. Jesus was from the village of Nazareth. It comes from the root word of, Naz, of Nazir, to be set apart. If you go to Numbers chapter 6, verses 1 through 21, you'll find out this is what Nazarites are. Some of us know we take this Nazarite vow and we grow a cool beard, right? That's maybe how you, that's part of it. Not the cool beard, just growing hair. So here it is. Number 6, one, first it's, it's men or women who take a vow You take the vow. You take the vow to separate yourself for a period of time. And when you set yourself apart, there's three things during that period of time. It's a response to God and what he's doing in your life. So when I become a Nazarite, I choose to do it. I take a vow for whatever that period of time is. There's three things I don't do. I don't do anything that deals with a grapevine. I don't eat grapes, raisins. I don't drink wine, no alcoholic drinks. That's one. Two, never cut my hair. During that season of that vow. And number three, I don't ever go near anything that's dead. So if I am in the time of a Nazarite vow and I have a family member pass away, I would not go to the funeral or be close to the dead body. So Samson was a Nazarite, but interestingly enough is that he was set apart from birth. God chose him for a lifetime, not a season It wasn't his choice, and he was chosen for a lifetime to be separated for God. So not only was Samson born miraculously, not only is he a Nazarite, now we understand that, the third thing was he was called to save Israel from the Philistines. This is the latest group that's persecuting, oppressing, well, kind of, let me get to that. God raised Samson up to be a judge, so by our definition, he raised Samson up to be a rescuer of the land and the nation of Israel. Samson's family, kind of the Philistines really had intervened. They were all over the place. The tribe of Dan had Philistines all around him. As a matter of fact, where Samson was, his family was farming right in the middle of a bunch of Philistines. They were like daily occurrence around him. The Philistines, according to the scripture, were oppressing Israel for 40 years. 
And what happened, what's kind of intriguing in this, in each season that they go through this up and down, these six cycles, this season they're kind of okay with the Philistines. They're kind of okay with worshiping their gods. They're kind of okay with the distress they're in. They're kind of okay with the mess. They kind of become acclimated to it and just say, this is what it is. The last thing about Samson is that he was empowered by the Spirit. And you see this throughout the scripture in four chapters here. In the story of Samson, much attention is given to his hair. His power comes from his hair. Um, I want to be kind of cautious. There's only one thing his power comes from, and that's from God. Now, whether God puts in his hair, I don't think so. I think the hair is just that Nazarite vow. I am separated for God. It's a symbol of that. But the reason why the power only comes to the Holy Spirit, Judges 13, 25, it says, from a young age, the Spirit of the Lord began to, to stir in him. Judges 14, 6, a young lion suddenly attacked Samson. The Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon him, and he ripped the lion's jaws apart with his bare hands. Judges is so graphic. You just got to love it. Judges 14, 19, then the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon Samson. He defeated 30 Philistines single-handedly. And Judges 15, 14, the Spirit of the Lord, are you seeing a pattern? The Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon him. He snapped the ropes that bound him. Using the jawbone of a donkey, he killed a thousand Philistines, the enemies of God. What's neat about in the book of Judges is four chapters are given to Samson. Gideon got four chapters too. Everybody else gets a little small part. Samson's the only one that was described from birth to death. A lot of description about Samson. I think there's a reason for this. Despite being this amazing vessel of power, Samson struggled through his whole life. And his biggest problem was his eyes. His eyes kept leading him off the path of his calling. His eyes kept leading him to things and pursue the temptations. He really liked Philistine women and names at least three. So much, when you read these four chapters, you're like going, how in the heck did he get put in the heroes of faith place? Like, it's so graphic how often he turns from God himself. We know he's physically strong. We also know by the time we're done with four chapters, he's spiritually weak. It starts with a Philistine woman from Timnah. Despite his parents who know his calling, Samson lets his sight be overrun by his sight overruns, writes, overwrites, overruns his wisdom and his calling. Judges 14.3. We can see why his sight is a problem in his eyes. But Samson told his father, get her for me. She looks good for me. Modern translation, dad, she's hot. I want her. Samson is interested in what looks right in his eyes, not what's in, right in the eyes of the Lord. And so Samson has this trouble constantly with looking and being captivated by the, the godless nations around him, by the things that are pleasurable, and every time he gets into it, it eventually has a devastating run in him. And then we also see this pattern where his emotion comes out. Is every time he gets in those places, his anger, his frustration, his lustfulness just accelerates. Starts with his eyes. Here's another one, Judges 14, 8 through 9. Another example, he, Samson, turned off the path to look at the carcass of the lion. This is a lion that he tore apart with his bare hands. This is days, weeks later. And he found that a swarm of bees had made honey in the carcass. 
He scooped some of the honey into his hands and he ate it along the way. Gave some to his mom and dad too. This verse starts with an important thing, I think, for all of us is he took his eyes off the path and turned. And he looked at something else and went after it. Now, going and get a handful of honey is a really cool thing. Grabbing it out of a dead lion is not. But I think the importance of the story is to look at what is his Nazarite vow. And he breaks all three of them. He gets down into a dead animal. Like he's so far off his calling, he's not even paying attention. Turns off the path to look. But Nazarite hanging out with a dead thing, it's just like, man, he gets so lost. So here's your third sermon note together. I think as we see this summary of the struggle that Samson has, is this note, broken vessels look like the nations around them. Samson's a broken vessel a lot. And he looks a lot like the people around him. When we go through life and we go off the path, we look a lot like the brokenness around us. Samson, despite his calling and being set apart, liked to straddle the fence of life. I think this is where, where, where it kind of meets us. He liked his calling, but he liked the world, and he thought he could do both. And so he straddles the fence. And time after time, he becomes very broken, shattered, and he looks just like everything around him, and you see his emotion come out of that too. None other than the ending story of his life. Let's go here where it talks about what the songs are all written about in the movies, Samson and Delilah. So Delilah is a third woman he pursued that's written. I don't know if she's Philistine. It doesn't really say. Um, but what's different in this case is that Samson actually falls in love. It's the first time the Bible describes him falling in love. But did Delilah love him? I don't know, because the Philistine rulers who did not like Samson came to her and said, what's his strength? And they said, we'll give you 1,100 silver coins each if you rat him out, because he's a thorn in our side. And so Delilah does. She, she, whether she's, that's a huge amount of money, not 1,100, 1,100 11 from each, each ruler. <laughs> You're talking about a lifetime of money. So she presses him. What makes you so strong? What makes you so strong? And he, and he kind of just plays with her for quite a while. And finally he gives in and tells her it's his hair. His strength comes from his hair. So one night she gets him to rest her, his head on her lap. He falls asleep. She has some guys come in and help. And they cut his hair. Samson's hair, like I said, wasn't powerful. It was, it was symbolic of him being separated for God. But what's interesting is you go to chapter 16, verse 20. It says, when Samson woke up, he knew his strength was gone. And it said this, he knew the Lord had left him. He knew the spirit of the Lord was gone. That's where his strength come from. He's captured the rest of the story. You're probably familiar with this. He's captured by the Philistines. They gouge his eyes out. They bind him with bronze chains and they force him to grind grain in prison. It's a big change from your calling in life, right? Samson is just so interesting to read this. He's a broken vessel and really broken at this point, at least likely to be called a saint. But yet, he's still called a hero of faith. 
His story ends tragically. The Philistine rulers all come to the temple. They're, they're going to worship in their temple to Dagon, their God. And they have Samson brought out, eyes gouged out, blind. They tie him up for amusement while they're celebrating around him. Samson's standing between two big pillars supporting the roof of the temple. And Samson cries out to God. Judges 16:28 says, and Samson prayed to the Lord, Sovereign Lord, remember me again. Oh God, please strengthen me just one more time. With one blow, let me pay back the Philistines for the loss of my two eyes. The Bible reminds us at that time his hair had grown back. And that isn't where his strength come from but it is a sign he got back to his vow. He pushes on the two pillars, the roof comes down, kills all the Philistine leaders of that generation, 3,000 in total, and Samson does the ultimate sacrifice, it kills him too. He gives his life. Early on we talked about the scripture that in Samson's life would begin the downfall of the Philistines so Samson didn't destroy the Philistines, but by that act of taking out all their leaders and everything, it set the course for the Philistines losing power, which we see through Samuel and David later. In that moment, Samson sacrifices his life for his calling. That's why he's a hero of faith. What can we learn from Samson? What can we learn from this story? I think the first thing, remember, we're all called. You don't need a Nazarite vow. We're all called and set apart by Jesus for a reason, to be vessels of light with great power to the world. But we are also clay vessels, full of light treasure and the great power of God. Why is Samson so popular, I think, in today's culture and movies and stuff? I think because when we look at Samson, we see ourselves. The one character we can all relate to. The one that we know we straddle the fence. We want to do this in our faith, but we, we love the world too. And no other character sets as deep as this one. We become broken when we straddle the fence. All it takes is some pursuit of the world and it starts that process of breaking us down, creating cracks, and eventually we watch our lives get broken or we watch them shatter. When a world becomes more enticing than our calling of how God wants to use us, we become broken vessels and then we don't carry the light and we're in need of repair. We've done this, Right? We might be doing it now. And chances are we will be broken or cracked again. All of us. Because this area is the one that hits us the most. We're broken by the things that look good but aren't. We're broken by sin. We're broken by worshiping other things than God. Sometimes we're just cracked. Sometimes we're broken like a big piece like this. And sometimes we're shattered. The bowl I broke in a second service, it's like in 20 pieces. I'm still trying to put it back together. 
can I say, if we're cracked today, like we're still dealing with the past, when I was, went the other direction and I went off the path, or if today I'm off, I'm clearly off the path, I'm broken. Or if there's one day down the road that we know life will hit us. Here's your fourth sermon. This is most important. God hears us when we cry out. No matter whether it's something from the past in your life of brokenness, whether it's your brokenness today or whether it's something that's going to hit us in the future, God will hear us when we cry out. He always does. The Bible gives us comfort. When we go off the path, when we look, at, look just like the world around us, when we're hit with that hard time, cry out. Ask forgiveness. Come off the fence. And God will put us back together again. But he does this so differently than, than Samson's time because something happened between then and now. God puts us back together and he does this through Jesus. He does it through the very blood of Christ. This gold seam that holds us together symbolizes the best he could give us, the life of his son. And that's what puts us back together. We don't need when our life is messed up, we don't need a book or tips or steps on how to save ourselves. We need a savior. We need someone to come do for us what we can't do for ourselves. Your last sermon note together. This is something, remember, after we cry out, remember that we have a judge who rescues and restores us. Jesus came as our Savior. He sits on the throne today as our judge. And he's still a judge who rescues. And he's still a judge that restores. It's interesting, Jesus' life, Samson's life parallels Jesus' life a lot. Jesus was born miraculously, right? Jesus lived a life as a rescuer for not just a nation. Jesus lived a life as a rescuer for the world. The difference between him and Samson is Jesus did it perfectly. And Jesus, like Samson, one day gave his life. He died tragically but it was all part of a plan. Jesus' life and sacrificing his own life was the only way that you and I could be made whole again. And we celebrate this in communion. I want you to read this with me. This is a great verse out of the New Testament, to, but I want you to read it together aloud. I've changed the pronouns to we instead of you or I. I want you to read this with me. This includes us who were once far away from God. We were his enemies, separated from him by our evil thoughts and actions. Yet now he has reconciled us to himself through the death of Christ in his physical body. As a result, he has brought us into his own presence. And we are holy and blameless as we stand before him without a single fault. We are in the presence of the Savior who brings us the presence of the Father put together by the gold seam of his blood, made perfect and whole, 
This is how God sees you and I today. He sees us as whole and holy and perfect because he sees us through the eyes of the one who paid the price for us. So we didn't have to.